Really excited about uh, the sermon series that we have the privilege of going through over the next eight more weeks. We started last week looking at the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. And last week we sought to uh, remove uh, some of the false views of who God is and what salvation is so that we would not be satisfied in a lesser view of God. Really, that is not God at all, not scriptural, and it lacks any kind of glory that salvation has as presented in the scripture. What we're going to do here this morning is set a, a trajectory, a course that we're going to follow for the next eight weeks as we look at the power of God. Because the gospel and the glory of God is like a diamond that's so it's multifaceted. You can look at an aspect of the gospel and you can see what well, there's God's wisdom and God's wisdom is his glory. You can turn a little bit and you can see God's goodness. God's goodness is glorious. And you can see his, his grace or his mercy, um, his, his ability to, to plan all of this, his oversight, his providence. And so we see all of that in the gospel. But what we're going to do is look primarily at God's power. It's power in the gospel. And it's something that we don't uh, readily think of. We think of power. You know, if, if I was to ask you uh, what you would come to mind, you think about God's power, it probably wouldn't be salvation. You know, what, what do we mean when we talk about how God is powerful? And if, you, if you've been around church or Christian circles, you think about God being powerful. You think of uh, that God is omnipotent. Okay, there's a, a theological term that we use to speak about God's power. He's, he's omnipotent. He has all power. And what we mean by God's omnipotence is that God is all powerful. He can do all his holy will. In fact, if you were to ask our kids um, a catechism question that asked them, you know, can God do all things? They would say, yes, God can do all his holy will. Okay, because we recognize that God cannot do all things, period. Okay, there's something that God can't do. Do you know that? Some things God can't do. He can't lie. He can't deny himself. He can't cease to exist. Um, and he also, he, he can't create a rock that's too heavy for him to lift. I'm not sure if you've wondered about that one before. You had that question asked to you. God cannot create a rock that's too heavy for him to lift. He can't create a contradiction. Okay? And so he cannot do certain things. But if we were to see uh, or try to understand how do we actually see the power of God, not this intellectual idea of God's omnipotence, but how do I see it tangibly, understand, get a glimpse of the glory of God's power? If I was to ask you that, you'd probably think of, first of all, creation. Creation displays the power of God. Because who else could speak? And then worlds are in existence. Sun, moon, stars, animal life, the birds in the air, us, us ourselves. God spoke. And the biggest things we see in our universe, down to the smallest things, are all created by God's power. And we're going to consider God's power in creation this morning as we consider that. But one area we don't really think of when it comes to God's power is God's power in the work of salvation. One thing you probably didn't even notice as we sang those songs, each and every song that we sang mentioned God's power in salvation. But so often we, we hear this and we seem to gloss over it. We read Romans 1.16 this morning when it says that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. The power of God. That is, the gospel is God's power. That's what it is. The gospel is a demonstration of God's power. So this morning... 
We're going to lay a foundation of God's power and, and show that God's power is foundational to the gospel. First Corinthians one eighteen says this for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We would expect there when he says the word of the cross, that is the gospel message, the message of Christ taking on human flesh, dying for sin and then rising again three days later. Okay, we recognize that is foolish message that we can receive forgiveness of sins through a, a dying and suffering savior, a Jewish man who lived 2000 years ago and, and now he's resurrected and we can receive forgiveness of sins through him. That's a, a foolish message to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, we would expect that's God's wisdom. It's not foolishness, it's wisdom. But what does the scripture say? But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So why would the scriptures use such terms? That's what we're going to dig into here this morning. And then throughout these coming weeks, as we look at the atonement, as we look at the new birth, as we look at God's conquering grace, we're going to see that thread of God's power in salvation. This morning, what I want you to take away from this message is that the gospel is God's power and for you to be convinced of that fact. Okay, let's first of all consider God's power in creation. God's power in creation. Before we look at salvation, let's consider God's power in creation. This is what we key in on when we think about a powerful God is his creation. If you have Romans 1 opened, uh, you can look at verse number 20. Verse number 20 in Romans 1, it says this, that God's invisible attributes... Namely, or that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. That is, through the things that are made by God, we see clearly his power, his power. It's a great darkness that has come over our Western enlightened world, great darkness, that thousands, millions of people can gaze at the Rocky Mountains and see their beauty and and recognize awe and wonder that it brings. Great darkness when we can stare up into the nighttime sky and feel those same kinds of emotions or view an ultrasound of a picture of of a baby developing within his or her mother's womb or to hold a newborn baby in your arms or to see the diversity and the plain design in the animal world or in the plant world all these things that God has made and inside of us we feel awe, we feel wonder, we feel joy and the great darkness, the great travesty of our age is that so many people would look at that and they'd feel that wonder and they would say there is no God. It's foolishness, as the Bible says. It's deception, self-deception. Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, God's power and divine nature are clearly seen the things that he has made. In our home, our family enjoys watching um, short little videos and clips when the kids are doing their schoolwork and they're learning about different animals and plants and such. And so we like watching clips. And and there's some good clips online that are done by either BBC or Discovery Channel, these things. And they, they show an animal. And these are programs that are designed from an atheistic or agnostic worldview. They don't believe in God. They assume that evolutionary theory explains all of the diversity that we have in life and explains why we're here. And yet, through their own programs, as they seek to sell their message of evolution, they, in fact, betray 
They, they cannot keep the truth of God's, uh, they cannot keep God's truth suppressed. And so they betray the fact that they do know God exists. In fact, when you watch these programs, they love to show these beautiful landscapes, these beautiful animals, and they'll, they'll tell you, look at the wonder, look at the beauty of such things. And in fact, so often, almost every single clip that we watch, they mention the word design. It's beautifully designed, beautifully designed. And every time that happens, I say, kids, you hear that? Do you hear that? Do you get that one? Designed. That's because they know God has made it. Because you can't look at the things in this world and say it's all happened by chance. It's perfectly designed. And so we see God's power in this world that he has made. His amazing beauty, his divine nature. Consider this text in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 10, 12. It says, it is he who made the earth by his power who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. Later, God speaks in Jeremiah 27, 5, and he says this, It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth. It's God's power. God's power. Chapter 32, still in Jeremiah, God says this, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And we have this reply. Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You remember that. We serve and worship a God who is so powerful that he can create this whole universe. And so when, he can, when we consider that God can create the whole universe, God says, is there anything too hard for me? The answer is No. Nothing's too hard for you. Look at what you've done. Look at your power on display. And we're so amazed because we don't have anywhere near such power. It's too great for us to consider. Just an example of how big and powerful our God is. Um, I have here a quarter. Okay, just a regular quarter. And I want you to imagine that this quarter is our solar system. Okay, our solar system is pretty big. But if our solar system was shrank down to the size of a quarter, okay, so the outer rings of this quarter were the outer orbit, orbits of those planets on the very fringes that they can't decide whether they're planets or not, okay? And so they're going around. And so our sun on this corner, quarter would be a microscopic speck of dust in the middle of this quarter, okay? You wouldn't be able to see it with your eye. Our Earth would also be a microscopic piece of dust on this quarter. And if you turn the, our solar system sideways, it would look flat like this quarter, okay? So imagine that this is the size of our solar system. Our solar system is pretty big, okay? In, in the 70s, NASA sent off the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 spacecraft, okay, to explore the planets. And now Voyager 1 has left our solar system, the first man-made object to leave our solar system. Now, Voyager 1 is traveling... So it took, it took 35 years for Voyager 1 to leave our solar system, okay? 35 years of travel, and Voyager 1 travels at 17 meter, 17 kilometers, sorry, in a second. 17 kilometers in a second. That's the fastest traveling. If you were to travel as fast as Voyager 1 and go from Calgary to Edmonton, it would take you about 18 seconds, okay? That's how fast it's going. And it took it 35 years to go from the Earth to the very edge of that quarter, okay? Not even half the width of a quarter. 35 years. That's how big... Our solar system is. Now, if our solar system, you ask, well, how close is the nearest star? Because we live 
not only in a solar system, but also in a galaxy. If you were to say, how close is our nearest star to us? If you put this quarter down, and if you were to measure out just a bit farther than two football fields and put another quarter down, that's the distance of our nearest star. Okay, and it took 35 years for Voyager 1 to make almost half of the distance of that quarter. And now imagine how long it would take to travel to that next closest star. And that's just one star in our galaxy of billions of stars. And in fact, if this quarter was our solar system and it, we, we were to put it down here on the ground, our galaxy, just the Milky Way galaxy, one of billions of galaxies, okay, would be the size of our country. That's how big it is. It takes 100,000 light years to travel from one end of our solar system or one end of our galaxy to the other. 100,000 years traveling at the speed of light. That's how big our galaxy is, and it's just one of billions spread out in this huge universe. And God spoke that into existence. And so that's why the scriptures say, if God has done that, is anything too hard from him? And when we reflect on salvation, salvation is God's power. It's an amazing power that God works when he saves a sinner. Can we speak or create something? Can we say, let there be a tree? No, we can't. Let there be anything. We can't say it. How about planets, moons, stars? It's ridiculous to consider. We laugh because it's so unnatural. We know we're not, we don't have that creative power. But God does. Everything that we do, everything that man invents or designs or creates is a product of discovery. Discovering what God has done and how God's world works and then to imitate and to re-engineer what God has already done in his power. Now, it's not just in creation that we see God's wonderful power, but we see God's creative power in his son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus created the universe and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We read in the gospels, Jesus walked on water. He commanded the wind and the waves. He did this to show that he had God's power, power over nature, power that we do not have. We can't even fathom. And then, of course, Jesus has power over life and death itself. Okay, so we can see God's might, an un unfathomable power and size in creation. And we see that as well in our Lord Jesus Christ. You can try to imagine the strongest storm ever. And it's just, it's nothing compared to God's amazing power. Okay, so we consider God's power in creation. Now I want to look at God's power in salvation. God's power in salvation. More than God's power to create, the scriptures mention God's power to save. It's a more repeated theme, oft recurring in the scriptures. God's power to save, to rescue, to deliver. Probably one of the greatest examples we have in scripture is the Exodus account. The Exodus account. It's, it's so often framed as this is a demonstration of God's power. If you think about it, as the Israelites were in Egypt, God sent 10 great plagues, a demonstration of his power to free his people. And then once his people had left Egypt, God again demonstrates his power by parting the Red Sea and walls of water on either side of these people as they walk through on dry ground. And then God's power was seen in letting that water come back down and crush Pharaoh's army, God's power sustained them in the desert, led them into the promised land and overcame their enemies. So we see here God's power in this narrative. 
Exodus 14.31 says this about Israel and that event. It says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Okay, so what did people see? They saw the plagues. They saw the Red Sea. They saw the Exodus. They saw the power of God. So it's recorded. They saw the power of God. They saw it in the plagues. They saw it in their being sustained. They saw it in Pharaoh's judgment. Romans 9 tells us that Pharaoh was raised up so that God's power would be known. And God's power in judgment. There's a song of deliverance in Exodus 15. It says this, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. That is God's power is his glory. It shines his splendor, his magnificence. And it's seen here in the Exodus and this dramatic, miraculous deliverance of his people from bondage in Egypt. Not only do we have that, but we have God's power and salvation in the new covenant, the ministry of Christ. We have Romans 1.16, like we read. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the gospel is the power of God. Gospel is God's power. What we're going to do this morning is just look at some high-level things that demonstrate that the gospel is God's power, and then in the coming weeks we'll unpack further what we mean by that. First of all, how is the gospel God's power? Well, the gospel is powerful enough to deliver us from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. Wages of sin is death. What we earn, what our fair share is, like when you go to a job and you, you work for two weeks and you get a paycheck, you, you earn the wages of your job is your paycheck, right? It's what you receive. The wages of sin, what you earn, what you deserve is death. So the scriptures state consequences of our sin is death. And we have no power to deliver ourselves. We cannot stop sinning. And if we could, we cannot erase the sin that we've completed before. And if we could even do that, we are born in sin under the curse. So we see that the wage of sin is death. But the power of God is that the penalty of sin is taken care of by Christ. In Christ, we are freed from, delivered from, saved from the penalty of sin. That is, on his shoulders, he bore the death that we deserved as his followers. He bore our penalty so that we could go free. And that is a demonstration of God's power. God's power. Not only that, but in God's power and salvation, we are delivered from not just the penalty of sin, not just his consequences of being death, but sin's power. Scriptures tell us that if we sin, we are a slave to sin. That is, we are in bondage. We have a cruel taskmaster. And we are at sin's beck and call. Now, anyone who has tried to reform themselves, just through their own willpower, who have tried to battle the sinfulness and the desires of their heart, who've tried to kick a bad habit or tried to change a certain bad behavior, or perhaps you've tried to change how you think or 
what you desire. You know all too well the power of sin. Such things end in misery and heartache and then we give up. Sin's too great. It's too powerful. I can't beat it. It's the power of evil desires. There's a power of lust. The power of greed. The power of pride and selfishness. They're too great for us. And the scriptures say that we are in bondage to these things. They enslave us. But in Christ, through his power, we are delivered, rescued, saved from the power of sin. Such that we not only are we saved from the penalty, the consequences of our sin, but even sin's power. John 8, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. He continues and says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That is the power of sin. Its bondage is broken through the work of Christ. Romans 8 says it this way, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The power of God in true salvation delivers us from the power of sin and the power of death. Thirdly, the power of God is seen in our deliverance from the kingdom of darkness and the power of Satan. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says this, He, speaking of Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We don't do that. God has delivered us as his followers, as those who are trusting and clinging to the promises of Lord Jesus Christ, who have been born anew by the new birth. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, from Satan's realm, and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his son. We now have new allegiances. It's like living in a new country. We are are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And we are now to, to live and to act and to behave by God's power as these citizens of heaven our desires are now for him our goal our goal is to be like him and to make him known to advance this kingdom galatians 1 4 says this way that jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us to rescue us from the present evil age that's what christ did and that involves the power of god involves the power of god same power to create the world, to hang the stars in place. God knows them all by name. That same power is at work in us as his followers to save us from our sins, to deliver us from sin's penalty, its power, and from this domain of darkness in this present evil age. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to be looking in more detail on how God does this so we can again marvel at God's power and worship him all the more. But this morning, what I want to do now as we reflected on these truths is three things for us to consider, three reflections for us to consider when it comes to God's power. Okay? Try to apply these truths to our own hearts. Three things to consider. The first is this. True, biblical Christianity is a result of the infinite power of God 
at work to save a human soul. Okay, I'm going to say that again. True biblical Christianity is a result of the infinite power of God at work to save a human soul. Okay, we've already looked at Romans 1.16. The gospel is, you know, Christ's death and resurrection, him taking on humanity, doing his things that he did when he came here, and now interceding for us. The gospel is God's power for salvation to those who believe. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says this, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Okay? The gospel is God's power. True biblical Christianity is a result of this infinite power of God at work to save a human soul. Now, why do I emphasize that so much? What's so spectacular about that? What's so significant about that? We must not settle for anything less than that. The Christianity of our day is so much so, well, God might be able to help you shave off the kind of the rough stuff around the edges. He might be able to, you know, give you a community that you can be a part of. You know, he, he, he might be, give you a ticket to heaven, but, but really there's no power in this life to be changed or transformed. You know, forget about the Great Commission. That's just optional. Forget about sacrificing yourself for the good of others and for loving others like Christ did. Forget about going to the far reaches of the earth, shedding our blood as believers so that people hear the gospel. Well, that's for people who are really serious and committed. Not at all. That's a result of God's power working in ordinary sinners to transform them and to change them into redeemed sinners, products of God's grace. And God does this through his power. Christianity is powerful. It's not just a natural man-made religion. So we have to ask ourselves, is this my experience? Is this your experience? Is your Christianity supernatural? Is your Christianity a result of God's power working in your life to save your soul? Has your life been touched by the almighty, infinite, creative power of God to give you new life? Have you seen God's power directed at you to deliver you from the penalty of sin, to deliver you from sin's power, to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, kingdom of his son? Has God's power touched you in the salvation of your soul? We can't settle for anything less. What, what, what do we gain by being hypocrites about our salvation? What do we gain by putting on a facade of some kind of external religion, some natural religion? What do we gain by that? It's like taking the, the best blankets and linens that are in your house and, and that they look so nice and they're freshly washed and they smell so good. And it's like taking those and, and dragging them over a big pile of manure, manure to cover it up. It's going to do you no good. Everything under that is so rotten and filthy and it stinks. And no matter what you put on top of it, it's still rotten to the core. And so what good is it if we try to go around it and fake a good Christian external, if we haven't experienced the power of God for ourselves? We've missed it. The goal here is not just to fake it, not just to be a hypocrite, not just to have some kind of external conformity to some set of morality or guidelines. Don't you want to see the power of God at work among us? 
Don't you want to see the power of God to convert a soul? Don't you want to see the power of God working in your own life? That same power who created the stars and the planets? Is that power directed towards you? Then don't accept a substitute. Don't accept a false view of Christianity, what it's all about. Long for, yearn for the power of God and the conversion of a soul. And when we do, we have to believe and trust in the saving power. So we move away those false substitutes. We long for and believe in this God who is powerful to save. Not forsaking him for a lesser view of who he is. Not trying to forsake him because, well, a a God that big and that powerful is just too much for our self-love or this human um, focus that we have in our day and age. But rather we are to consider the scriptures and to see God's power. Listen to what it says about the people in the wilderness generation. We talked about last week how they crafted their own God after they saw the wonderful power and work of God. It says in Psalm 78, 22, that they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. What happens when you have a people who see the power of God, see it in creation, see it in his redemption, and don't trust it? They make idols. They make false gods. They make gods who, who, are, who are more like them. Gods, gods that are smaller and that we can handle better. And so we are called here not to forsake God and to go into idolatry and disobedience, but rather trust God and his saving power, believing in God's power for salvation. First Corinthians 2, 5 says it this way, that our faith, he says that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Part of saving faith, true Christian saving faith is belief in the power of God to save, the power of the gospel to convert, to forgive, to give new life. So if you are here this morning and you're being honest with yourself and you're, and you're thinking, I'm not sure if I've been touched by the power of God or I, I, I'm pretty sure I haven't been touched by the power of God. Your goal and your duty is not just to fake it till you make it. Not just to um, keep on a, an external facade up. Your duty is not to, to craft a God that is more suitable to you or to match who you are, to ignore some of these truths in Scripture. And I'm just going to take that out. And well, that must be for the really committed Christians or that must be just for the early church. Your duty is not to do those things, but your duty is to get to know this God who is all powerful. Your duty is to yearn for him. Your duty is to pray and to plead that God would be merciful and gracious to you, that he would make his power known in your life, that he would convert your soul wonderfully, miraculously. And you never stop. You never give up. You continue to pray. You continue to humble yourself before his awesome power. I pray that if this is you here this morning, that you would see your condition and it would cause you to run to Christ. Run to his mercy. Run to his grace. Ask him to change you, to forgive you, to work in you his true power. And so this first truth, that true biblical Christianity, the only Christianity worth anything, is result of the infinite power of God at work to save a human soul. Okay? Cannot be faked, cannot be imitated. God's almighty power is necessary. 
The second thing, second reflection. God's power is at work for us and in us. As followers of Christ, God's power is at work for us and in us. At this point, maybe you're thinking, well, maybe I'm overstating my case about God's power and how that relates to our salvation. I want to read a handful of scriptures that demonstrate clearly that God's power, same power that he used to create the world, is at work for us and in us as believers of the Lord Jesus. Okay, we see his power at work for us. Listen to Ephesians 1. 17 to 20. Ephesians 1, 17 to 20. God's power at work for us. Here Paul is praying and he says this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, conquering the grave. That same power is at work toward us who believe in Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I'm praying that you would grasp this unmeasurable, this infinite, this great power, that you would see the glory of God in the power at work in you as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's power is at work for you. Not only that, God's power is at work in you. Ephesians 3.16 says this, Paul again praying, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Later he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God's power is at work within the believer. Strengthening in this inner man, in our inner being. God's power is at work within us. And listen to 2 Peter 1.3. This is the last one I'll read. 2 Peter 1.3. It says this. God's divine power, okay? His divine power, that is his, his infinite power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And so what happens within a human soul that we could say that we had a sinful nature and now partakers of the divine nature? What's he talking about? He's talking about the new birth. And what Jesus in the Gospel of John and later in, in, in John, his letter, 1 John, talks about being born of God, being born again, born from above, receiving a new spirit within you, a new creature, a new creation in Christ, a divine, now a partaker of the divine nature. And this is accomplished by God's divine power at work in us. And so salvation is necessarily 
a result of God's divine, almighty power at work for us and at work in us. So important to understand. Third reflection that we're going to look at here this morning. Last one is that God's power primarily is not man-centered, but rather God-centered. Okay, the third one is this. God's power in salvation displays his glory. God's power in salvation displays his glory. Psalm 19 begins that um, the heavens declare the glory of God. That is God's creation shouts Proclaims, not with words, but it proclaims the glory of God. And salvation displays God's glory, his power, his splendor, his loveliness, goodness, honor, fame, his magnificence. It's all on display in God's salvation. And God has done this. He has saved in such a powerful way. His power is at work to save a human soul so, so that he would be glorified. Listen to what it says in Psalm 67, verse 2. This is a plea that God's way may be known on earth, his saving power among all nations. That's why we're here, so that God's saving power would be known among all the nations. Here are a people that God has miraculously saved by his power, by his might and strength through his son, Jesus Christ, and the application of the spirit. Psalm 106, 8 says this, that he saved them for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power why did god save us in such a powerful way for his own name's sake so that others would recognize and know god's mighty power so they would see his glory salvation meets our greatest need but it doesn't primarily serve us it serves god and it's a display of his glory. And that's, this is why it's so important to re- recognize that the gospel is God's power. Not just so that we would not be satisfied with a man-made cheap imitation of the Christian life. A, a life that is not marked by the God's power and the miracle of the new birth. So that God will receive glory. So that God will receive glory. The one main idea that I wanted to communicate here this morning is that the gospel is God's power. Being a Christian is a product of God's power working for us and in us. Now to some, this is a cause of great rejoicing and worship. Because when we consider where we were and when we consider God's mercy and his grace and his power at work within us, when we consider the, the wonderful truths in the scripture, when we consider the power of Christ who, who veiled his power, who cloaked it, who came to this earth and who died in our place and then rose again three days later. And through his power, through that death and resurrection, we are granted forgiveness of sins. We are granted newness of life. We will be glorified, free from sin, face to face with God, our maker forever and ever. That causes us to rejoice and to worship him and to long to know him even more, to love him, to do whatever it takes to be with him. And when we consider the power of God, that's what wells up in some of our hearts when we consider God's power. It's such a delight, it's such a joy because it has touched us. And so we marvel. Now to others, 
considering God's power in salvation, may actually cause us to feel despairing. It may cause us to worry. Because now we're thinking, that doesn't sound like my experience. It doesn't sound like I've been touched by God's power. The same power that created worlds into existence, He's directed towards me. I just don't see it. And so it causes us to despair. What's wrong with me? What do I need to do? Now this truth that the gospel is God's power is not meant to be good news, bad news. Sorry, it's not meant to be bad news. It's not meant to be despairing. It's meant to be good news. Great news. Because what it means if you're despairing and wondering if I've been touched by the power of God or not is that because the gospel is God's power to salvation for all who believe, it means there's no more striving, no more trying to imitate holiness, trying to imitate the Christian life, no more trying to just have this external form of duty, no trying to to clean up my pride and trying to clean up my selfishness and trying to work my way so I can be pleasing to God. And have I done enough? Have I repented enough? Have I done enough to please Him? Because salvation is not about you. It's about the power of God at work in your life to save you from the penalty and from the power of sin. So it's gloriously wonderful good news. And this message here says it is God's power Salvation for those who believe, for those who trust, for those who come to Christ empty and broken and saying, I have nothing. I'm done with my striving. I'm done with my effort. I'm done with my sinfulness. God, I need your power at work. I need your power to convert me. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. And so we see that this message is good news. You have no power. We have no power. Only sin. We have no hope. Only despair. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have power, forgiveness of our sins. And so the takeaway this morning is not to be despairing. And if we leave from the message when we consider the power of God in salvation, and we're still really despairing, perhaps we're despairing because our focus is more on our own pride. Because pride is preventing us to come to Christ and say, I'm a worthless sinner and I need your power at work. We don't want to ruin our pride. We don't want to uh, let it known that perhaps I wasn't being genuine. Perhaps I, I wasn't truly converted. And so pride gets in our way. And so we can continue to despair. But we are called here not to despair, but to put our trust, our confidence in Christ, this risen Lord who's been Wounded, suffering, dead, and raised for our justification. So let go of pride. Let go of self-confidence. If you desire the power of God, these things need to fall away as we embrace the truthfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ. So cry to him to bring his power into your life. And if he has done that, then rejoice in him and proclaim his name and make his power and glory known. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for the truth of your word. God, so often when we consider the truth in your word, we 
must realize and accept that we've held lesser views of you than we should. That we've minimized your power, we've minimized your greatness, and therefore have robbed you of your glory. God, I pray that you would, by your grace, by your mercy, and by your might, that you would change our minds to see your power and your greatness and things that you have made. And that we'd also see your power and greatness in your salvation. Oh God, I pray that each and every one of us here would be acquainted with your power in the salvation of our souls. That we would be acquainted with the wonder, the miracle, the new birth. That by your divine power we may become partakers of the divine nature. That there would be a new wellspring of life from the inside flowing out. New desires, new hopes, new dreams. Ones that are directed towards you. Hearts that are warmed by considering the Lord Jesus Christ. Hearts that are in love with Christ and what he has done. Hearts that love you and desire to glorify you, to tell of your wonder and your worth. Oh God, such an attitude, such a heart is unnatural to us. It cannot be duplicated, cannot be imitated, cannot be faked. It requires your work and your power. So God, I pray that you would be merciful and gracious. Pray that you would forgive our sins. Pray that you would humble us so that we would approach you with open hands and open arms and plead for your mercy. And I pray that we would have confidence, not in our own selves, but in your power, in your word, in your promises, in your faithfulness. And that we would come to you trusting and believing in the finished work of Christ. Oh God, and upon that truth, that we would stand and worship you, that we would proclaim your name, that we would encourage one another, and that we would pursue you with our whole being all of our lives. What a great joy that would be. We ask you to do this, to change our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.